As a mother, wife, and divorce attorney for over 15 years, experience has taught me a lot about how to deal with times of uncertainty, transition, and facing opportunities for growth. I'm happy you're joining me for this part of the journey. I am so excited to have Dr. Honey Chef with me today. Dr. Chef is a psychologist who has been working with families since 1983. In addition to her work as a therapist, she's also taught psychology at the University of Texas at Dallas and has been in the middle of some of the most contested high conflict custody cases. In addition to her litigation work, Dr. Chef also developed an area of expertise in collaborative divorce, and she's been well recognized for her work as a collaborative divorce professional. In fact, she recently received the Gay Cox Award for Excellence in Collaborative Law, and she is a mastered credentialed collaborative law professional, which is the highest credential a collaborative professional can, can reach. She also has served and offered her services and contribution to the collaborative movement across the state of Texas and across the United States, having served as past president of Collaborative Divorce Texas. Dr. Chef, it's so nice to have you here today. <laughs> Thank you. You make me sound wonderfully skilled and experienced. Thank you for that. Well, I think it's all the work that you've done that speaks for itself. Thank you. I want to talk to you today about the role of a mental health professional in a collaborative divorce. I think a lot of people don't know that collaborative divorce relies on other professionals besides just the lawyers. And in my experience, it's really one of the best reasons to, to do a collaborative divorce is to take in the, the expertise of others. So can you describe for us, what is the role of mental health professional? I'd be happy to. Um, may I start with what it isn't? Yes, please. Okay. So the mental health professional in the collaborative divorce process is not a therapist, is not a counselor, is not an evaluator, and is not a diagnostician. Those are some big words. So we're going to yes. have to break them down <laughs> a little bit. And maybe in breaking them down, that will help us kind of better understand what it is. So what is a diagnostic? Ah, I can't even say it. A diagnostician. So a diagnostician is when there is a question of um, a, whether a disorder is present or not present. And you go to a clinically trained professional to receive a diagnosis of some kind as to whether the disorder exists or doesn't exist and what it might be. So for example, uh, a diagnosis of a narcissism or borderline or all those terms that we often hear in family law, you actually have to have a clinically trained uh, expert to, to give that diagnosis, right? That is correct. And we don't do that in collaborative at all. And that is a big distinction. So an evaluator, you mentioned earlier that I did um, a lot of custody work. And what I did in the custody work where I did psychological evaluations that were designed to identify strengths, weaknesses, um, and be able to make um, recommendations about custody and visitation. So collaborative divorce, I don't do that in that process either. I don't evaluate. You're not a decision maker. You're not rendering judgment or, or kind of a recommendation as to who the better parent is. Absolutely correct. Okay. 
Okay. Um, and so, and I'm not a counselor and I'm not a therapist and I'm assuming those terms are certainly more familiar. So it's not a counseling process. It's not a therapy process. So this isn't marriage therapy. The couple, obviously they're coming into divorce. The marriage hasn't been great. They're not going to work out all those problems in your office. That is correct. Okay. And that's really critical because so many people in my experience when they're told by their attorney that they a full team will be used and the full team would include the two attorneys the neutral financial professional and the neutral mental health professional their immediate gut reaction is i'm not crazy i don't need a counselor i don't need a therapist there's nothing wrong with me and that has nothing to do with why the mental health professional is involved in the process. So let me tell you all the things it is now that I've told you what it isn't. So number one and most important is the mental health professional is neutral. They are not there to take sides. They're not there to align with either parent. Um, and they're in many ways, I think by working with the parents, perhaps aligning or advocating for their children, if there are children involved. Um, so neutrality is critical. The other thing that they do is they are more a facilitator. And that is the best way to think about this role is that they, that person, that um, professional on your team would be a facilitator. They facilitate communication between the husband and wife they facilitate communication among all of the team members. They're also a manager. They manage the emotions um, of all the team members, including the couple. So they are responsible for um, helping manage to take care of the couple and manage the emotions that sometimes can be very, very high. Um, they also, the role is also designed not only to help the couple learn to communicate more effectively and develop good communication skills, but that professional is also designed, is also helping the couple learn how to resolve conflict. These are also skills that are critical, right? Because in doing the conflict resolution education, in doing um, the communication training, they are laying the groundwork for the post-divorce co-parenting relationship. They are giving the parents the opportunity to create the very best post-divorce relationship that they can. So you're telling me that you take a couple who is at odds, they, you know, they won't agree that the sky is blue. Correct. And you're able to help them with conflict resolution skills, be able to reach resolution on their own. That is correct. <laughs> and, and it works. And I will tell you because of that, it's almost magical at times when you watch couples who have been at odds, who have been adversarial, be able to enter the room, enter the space that you create and learn to work together for the benefit of their children. The other thing in this role that the mental health professional does is they have a very specific task if in fact there are children 
minor children um, under the age of 18. Their job is to help the parents develop a parenting plan. And it is in the process of developing that parenting plan that the communication skills are taught, that the conflict resolution skills are taught because you are helping them identify um, possible disputes and work to resolve them. The other thing that a lot of people don't know is that as an, the MHP on a case, I run the meetings. Right. I run the agenda and I keep everybody on task. <laughs> and you do a very good job of that, honey. Thank you. Well, we know because we have worked together we in have. collaborative cases. We have. Um, I want to go back to something that I think is so important for people to understand. Um, one of the things about collaborative divorce that, uh, you know, I th people often think that it's easy, right? Like you come together and we sing Kumbaya and it's all easy. But the truth is, is it's not we're walking into this couple's own landmine of triggers and, and, and heightened emotions. And in order for collaborative divorce to work, it has to feel safe, right? And, Absolutely. And so when you talk about managing emotions, I know one of the things I've seen you do so well um, is really help give space for all of the emotions that show up when we're all sitting in a room together. That is correct. And I know that um, sometimes the attorneys are not really <laughs> thrilled with that um, because there are times where you just have to let it go. And we'll sit in a meeting and there'll be six of us around the table and or, you know, in the last year on the Zoom, you know, the Zoom room and, um, you know, the couple will start to get upset. One may start yelling, the other one may, you know, respond and the attorneys are kind of looking at me going, <laughs> you know, like do something, do something. And there are times where, again, I make a clinical judgment that they need to do this. They need to let this go. Now, I won't let it go too far and I will intervene. And then, but sometimes if it's just sitting there, mm -hmm. it needs to come out. I often talk with a couple about, help me to know where the, um, the minds are in the minefield. Because A, I can sometimes avoid them from getting triggered, or if they are triggered, I'm prepared. I know what to expect because I know it's there. Sometimes I may deliberately trigger it because if I don't, they're going to carry it forward mm -hmm. into the rest of the negotiation process or into their co-parenting relationship moving forward. And for me, one of the most important parts of my role is helping, especially again, if there are children, even if there are adult children, not only just minor children, helping these parents be able to have a healthy co-parenting relationship moving forward. And that's the foundational work that I do in this process. And one of the things I've also seen you do is really help help inform the team. So the other attorneys and the financial professional of what, what these possible landmines are um, so that as a team, we can work together to help them. And I think that's one of the things that's so significantly different about collaborative is that, you know, the lawyers are not out to fight a war. We are really there to help solve problems. And when, you know, a couple is working with you and you have information you can share with us, it helps us as a team show up in a way to really help move them through that. That is absolutely correct. Um, you know, 
one of the things you mentioned earlier was safety. That is critical to the process. It is, in many ways, I vision and the team kind of linking arms around this couple and creating what we've called in the business a safe container, mm -hmm. right? It is a place of safety and security so that people can be transparent, they can be honest, um, and they can share things that are really important to them, especially around their goals and their interests and their needs. And part of the way we create that safety is it's a very structured process. And that agenda that I mentioned earlier that I run during the meetings, that's designed to create safety so that nobody's going to walk into that meeting and ever be blindsided. Um, and if they, if there's an issue, maybe they'd had a crisis the night before. Um, we're not gonna deal with it in the meeting. We'll figure out a way to deal with it, but we are not going to address it in that meeting because we don't want anyone to walk into that meeting feel worried about a shoe dropping or what they have to be concerned that they're going to get hit with. And that communication among the team members facilitates that ability to keep the room safe. It really does. Um, all right, I wanna, I, you mentioned a parenting plan. And so that's something that we throw around all the time. We know what a parenting plan is. Um, a parenting plan will get drafted one way or another. It's part of a final decree. Right. Uh, but when you're doing work with people in creating a parenting plan, what issues are you addressing? What, what does that encompass? Okay, so I really appreciate you saying that because the reality is most people have no clue what a parenting plan is. Um, if you were to ask you know, a divorcing couple on the street, John and Jane Doe, what is a parenting plan? They are most likely to say, oh, it's that schedule. It's that schedule thing that we have to know where the kids are gonna be and when. And yes, that is a really important part of a parenting plan. In fact, there are three schedules, but probably more information than is needed at the moment. Um, but a parenting plan, so I wanna take a step back because it's so much more than a schedule. A parenting plan is um, a structure. So think about it. You are married and you are living together. There are no rules about parenting, right? <laughs> That's it, very true. <laughs> it just sort of evolves. Who's taking the kids to soccer? Who's taking the kids to get their hair cut? You do this and I'll do that. And oh, by the way, as your ships that pass in the night, you know, little Johnny has a doctor's appointment on Friday. Are you available to take him? Or do you, can you be there? Or don't forget about the parent-teacher conference. And life and rules around your parenting and your family just evolve. Well, when you're divorced, you are no longer ships that pass in the night. A little bit, yes, but you're no longer ships that really pass in the night. And you need to have rules because you're living in different homes. And so you do need to have rules around how you're going to make decisions, how you're going to share time, how you're going to parent, and how you're going to co-parent, how you're going to resolve disagreements, because disagreements are going to occur. Married, divorced, <laughs> there's going to be disagreements. And so the parenting plan is a structure that addresses all of those elements. 
um, that you need to be addressed for your post-divorce co-parenting relationship. And so when you put all that together, it does create a structure. And that structure is a parenting plan. And so there are certainly some pieces that are required to be in the divorce decree, right? So we have big words like conservatorship to talk about rights and duties and where the children are going to live most of the time. Then we have the possession schedule. And um, Ugh, I hate all of that. <laughs> I just want you to know when I'm working with people, I use much more family friendly language. <laughs> what language do you use? Well, when it comes to decision making, I talk about parental responsibilities. When I it comes to um, possession and access, I use um, time sharing or parenting time. Yeah, that's that is much more family friendly. It's more friendly. comfortable. But there are also things to think about and talk about as parents, especially, well, I mean, depending on the age of the children, if they're younger, if you have younger children, you're probably not thinking about, you know, cars, who's, are we going to buy a car for a child or, you know, what are, what are the rules around dating going to be or all of that. And of course, teenagers, I know I have several in my house, <laughs> I love it when the parents are at odds because they can just, you know, exacerbate that conflict for their own benefit. Um, what types of things do you address with people um, in a collaborative divorce when you're talking about a parenting plan that are just outside of what we normally include or required to include in a decree? So one of the um, sections of the parenting plan is called, and I've yet to come up with a really snazzy title for this, is called, are the additional topics. And I actually tell parents more often than not that those topics while they're not in the family code and they are not required, are probably the most important discussions for them to have for a variety of reasons. First of all, these are the things that we know based on a hundred years of experience here that people tend to argue and get into conflict over post-divorce. Those are the things that bring parents into my office um, post-divorce when I'm working as a parenting coordinator. So what we've learned is by dealing with these topics up front that parents don't tend to get into arguments or conflict or problems around these issues post-divorce because they've already been dealt with. For example, family law trivial pursuit. <laughs> the most um, the highest conflict topic that parents get into trouble with post-divorce. What do you think it is? Uh, introduction of significant others. Nope. nope. It is one of them. But okay. It's not. Actually, that isn't even way up there. Try nope. again. Um, curfews. Nope. It's actually extracurricular activities. Of course. Right? Parents get into so many arguments about extracurriculars what they're doing, are they going, are they not going, they want to stop, should they stop, um, who's taking them, when are they going, what happens when they miss, and who's paying, right, who's paying, <laughs> and so one of the things that, that is the, one of the first additional topics that we address, so we talk about what are the children currently doing, um, what do you think they're likely to do? Now with older kids, sometimes their schedules are pretty well set, right? They've already been doing these things and a lot of it is just discussing, should they continue, should they not continue? And just for you to know, 
that as the mental health professional, I do not deal with the money issues at all. I don't deal with the finances. That is dealt with in the whole team. But I ask parents to sort of look at this in a vacuum about how they want to make decisions about extracurricular activities. And by having these discussions, go back to what I said originally, several things are happening. A, they're talking. They're sharing their perspectives. They're giving their interests and their thoughts around those issues. Maybe they don't agree. So now what do we do when we don't agree? How do we resolve this issue? How do we resolve this dispute? You have several different ways. Let's talk about the ways you could resolve it. And what you're doing is taking a couple, even if the emotions are high, or a couple where um, they're not in agreement, and you're teaching and educating them. And one of the, um, one of the really nice parts about this particular role is that the parents, even though I'm not operating as a psychologist, I'm not operating as a therapist, I don't like turn that part of my brain off. It's still there. And so parents are getting the benefit of all of my knowledge, all of my experience. I've worked with kids my entire practice. I know what, ki what kids need in divorce. I know what's important to them. I know what works and doesn't work. And I'm able to help at least educate parents. Ultimately, it is their decision about what they do or don't do. But I often play devil's advocate and say, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about how this might appear to your children? How do you want this to appear to your children? Oh, that's such a good perspective is to remind them, um, remind all of us, the team too, that how important it is uh, in terms of how this looks to the children and how the children are going to feel about these issues. Um, that brings up an interesting point <clears throat> because I think a lot of people who are thinking about divorce um, are, are thinking about, well, you know, what are my children going to say in the divorce process? And um, I'm just wondering, do you, as a mental health professional, ever interview the children? Are you ever talking with the children? How do you know the child's voice in the divorce? Excellent question. I love that. Um, first of all, as the mental health professional on the team, I do not interview children. And a lot of times parents will ask, hey, well, why don't you talk to the children? Or, you know, can you find out? Or I'm worried about this, or I'm worried about that. And I don't interview the children because of the need for my neutrality. So let's say one parent, mom wants a certain schedule for the children and dad wants another schedule for the children. And they really are at odds. And I would say that happens a lot, obviously. So they may say, well, why don't you talk to the children? Because little Janie has told me this is what she wants. Or Johnny has told me he doesn't want to do that. And so think about it. If I was to interview the children and little Janie was to tell me that, or little Johnny was to tell me this, and then I go back to the parents, my neutrality has now been compromised. And I get could be accused of aligning with the other parent. And again, remember, everything tracks back to the significance and value of that neutrality. So I do think children's voice is critical. And so I approach it in three different ways. 
one, sometimes I will coach the parents through how to talk to the children about what's important to them, what do they need, what do they want the parents to think about when they're making these decisions. And some parents are actually able to do this on their own very effectively without coaching the children. Um, so that's one way. Second way is I may get information from the children's therapist if there's a therapist. So I may reach out and solicit information from the therapist. Now, keeping in mind, I cannot share any information with that therapist because of the confidentiality of the process. However, I can, in fact, solicit information from children's therapists and sometimes ask the therapist to get more information for the parents. However, I think the most effective way of gaining the children's voice is when there is a child specialist on the team. And I have served in that role also. It is a separate role done by a mental health professional where their job is solely to get the children's voice, to find out from the children what's important to them, what they need, <clears throat> what their fears are, what their wishes are, what their hopes are, what their concerns are. Um, what their thoughts are about holidays and traditions and summer activities. By the way, another very common additional topic, <laughs> yes. as well as the significant others that you mentioned earlier, um, all of which gives parents such a great runway to their post-divorce um, parenting. So um, the child specialist then provides that feedback it's a very limited scope role. Sorry, it's a real legal term, but it's a very limited, narrow right. focus designed solely to get the children's voice. Children understand in that process, they are not a decision maker, that they get a voice, they don't get a vote. And I believe you've had uh, somebody, another mental health professional on right. your podcast who has talked to great length about the child specialist role. Jennifer Leister. Yes, yes and she's wonderful. Yeah probably the number one child specialist in the state. Um, so then they provide that feedback. And now parents actually have a database, an information base upon which they can choose to factor that child's voice into their decision-making. Sometimes it doesn't, it just doesn't work. They try really, really hard and the kids are prepared for that. They're told, you know, just because your parents know this is important to you. There are many, many things that go into um, their decision-making and they may not be able to honor this request. In all the work that you've been doing with families, honey, over the years, are there some general themes that you see in terms of um, what children experience, what they need to know from parents who are in a divorce process that you can give as just like some general tips maybe? Oh, of course. The um, one of the things I do as the MHP, there's um, if needed, is I actually help parents um, both structure and script their divorce conversation with their children. And so pulling from that process, if they haven't yet done it, I'm able to actually help them create um, the environment and the dialogue that they're going to have with the children. And part of that process is I call must tell messages. So some of the must tell messages um, are, A, we will always love you. 
right? Nothing will ever change that. Um, a second one is we will always be your parents. Mom will always be your mom. Dad will always be your dad. Nothing's going to change that. Um, this is not your fault, right? That's one everybody knows about, right? right. This is not your fault. Uh, there are things that are going to change. There are a lot of things that are not going to change. So many of the things that parents experience post-divorce and their families experience have nothing to do with divorce. They're still parents and they still have the same decisions that have to be made about the car. They'd have to make that decision whether they, they were divorced or married. Um, tutoring, I mean, all the things that you, the decisions, the myriad of decisions that we make as parents really have very little to do with divorce. And so for your children, there is a lot that will change, but there is so much more quite frankly, that doesn't change. And I think that's a really important message. Um, another one is we will always be a family, just a different kind of family. Um, and I think probably the most important one is um, we will all be okay. I think these messages are so important. You and I both know, and I'm sure our listeners do too, they've seen you know, the terrible divorces. There's lots of examples of that and how destructive that is on children. But it's also, you know, it sets up a lifelong pattern. I mean, I know as a child of the 70s, so many of my peers struggled with their parents' high conflict divorce and it was really hard for them to have relationships. And so I think when we can pave the way for a healthy divorce, a positive divorce. I mean, that has an impact for generations. That isn't just this immediate family, but that the children are gonna carry that forward. And it's such important work. Oh, it's critical. Um, you know, I have been blessed to do probably over 200 collaborative divorces. Um, I have never really counted the number, <laughs> but it's probably over 200. and. I am so grateful because parents are trusting me with the rest of their family's lives to help them create the kind of homes, the kind of family that they want their children to experience. And the reality is divorce means that a marriage is ending. That is true. Um, but the parenting relationship goes on forever. And I have been lucky enough to hear from clients down the road, I mean, 10 years later, that about the nature of their relationship. I mean, it can actually make me tear up because some of the emails that I get about the quality of their um, post-divorce life are so gratifying to see it work. That's that magical moment yeah. that I've talked about. Um, I've had several couples in the course of my work in my collaborative cases um, actually reconcile. You just don't hear that in no. litigation. <laughs> you just don't hear that very often in litigation. And I have had a handful of cases who have reconciled. I mean, that is, um, it's just an incredible feeling to um, have an impact 
with people that um, allow them to be able to actually resume their marriage. One of the questions I had on my list of questions to ask you was, do you, do you ever see people actually become better parents post-divorce, better co-parents? I, I do. Um, I, and, I, and as I said, I hear from people all the time. I was actually at a workout studio and um, a, couple, uh, a woman came up to me and said, I don't know whether you remember me, I remembered her. Um, I, I, I remembered her. And I said, of course I remember you. And she said, I just want you to know. And this was about five years later, post-divorce. I was their neutral mental health professional on their team. Um, she said, I just want you to know how amazingly well we are still doing. People come up to us all the time at the kids' athletic activities, um, sports events, and they say, we can't believe you're divorced. You just don't even act divorced. And I, I mean, it was really, you know, again, that's the kind of feedback to get is just amazing and very magical for me. And um, she happened to specifically mention that they had started a tradition during the divorce of having Sunday night dinners. And she said, I want you to know, we're still having our Sunday night dinners. Um, I got an email from um, a dad who they were doing an, um, an alternating week schedule with midweek dinners. And his kids were over 18. They were still doing the <laughs> alternating week schedule and midweek dinners. And I mean, that is um, just, it's an opportunity. Not every couple, right? I'm giving you the, the best of the best. Right. Not every couple is able to sure. achieve that. Um, not every couple is able to establish a um, parenting connection um, and let go of the marital dysfunction and, and unhealthiness. Um, not every couple is able to overcome the hurt or the anger or the betrayal. But just think about the collaborative divorce process which is giving them an opportunity to work on making a better relationship. So they're, you're trying versus a litigation process where it's designed to add fuel to the mm -hmm. adversity and the anger and the hurt or even mediation. And I'm a huge, huge fan of mediation. I'm a mediator, but the reality is in mediation, the way we do it here, you have people in separate rooms and the mediator is playing Henry Kissinger, just kind of going back and forth, playing shuttle diplomacy, just exchanging proposals. The collaborative process is the only one that offers them an opportunity to begin the healing process. Now, real healing takes place, quite frankly, after the divorce. I've heard that from so many couples, yeah. but we begin the process. I always say, you know, divorce is not a destination. It's not your defining moment. It's not a place where you arrive and, you know, divorce is now the label that you wear. It's a period of transition. And if people will seize the opportunity, it can be a period of tremendous transformation. 
And I am so appreciative of the work you do, honey, with these families and really help train the other professionals as well. Speaking of training, real quick. Yes. Um, you do training for mental health professionals who might be interested I in do. collaborative. Right. So Collaborative Divorce Texas does two basic trainings a year, um, which is done by a training team. Um, one of which I believe has also been on your podcast, mm -hmm. Melinda Eitzen, right. um, Julie Quaid, who is Chris Farish's um, partner, and I know you've had Chris on here. Um, Julie Quaid and Melinda Eitzen are the attorneys. David Brunson is the financial professional, and I am the mental health professional. So we are the Dallas training team. In addition, right now, there is virtual training that is available. And again, this is the overall interdisciplinary basic training. But yes, I'm also available for doing training specifically for mental health professionals, um, and, uh, largely on how to do, not only how to do this process, but also how to do a parenting plan. I love it. Well, your work is fabulous and we're lucky to have you right here in our community. And thank you so much for taking time to come visit with me. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Thank you. If you want to learn more information about Dr. Chef and her practice, we will include a link below and I hope you'll click on it and learn more about her. Thank you. Thank you.